And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Hello, everyone. It's podcast time again. I can't believe it's May, Frank. This year's going by in a flash, so I guess we better get into it. Ah, but first, we got a little celebration. Today, April 15th. No, May 15th. Excuse me. Today, May 15th. Jimmy Sweet's birthday, and we're going to celebrate that with a little bit of libation of some good root beer. So, all right. Here you go. Here's a James, a great brother, podcaster, and man about town. Thank you. Anyway, well, baseball season is upon us again. So, tonight we have news from the 1954 Yankees and a tilted version of Who's On First. We also have a tribute to the wondrous, inflamed man of brilliance, Brother Theodore. Then there's a dramatized version of A Strange Tale by Ray Bradbury. A very short tour of Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And a discussion and book review of Running with the Devil about life with Van Halen. Plus a scholastic book reading and more stuff. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Streets. Let's get started. you in and out of doors every day think how much dust and dirt settle on your skin and makeup clings to your skin too and clogs pores that's why your face needs a thorough cleansing each day and that's why cleansing tests were made by an independent testing laboratory this same kind of dirt was made just radioactive enough to register on a geiger counter leading cleansing creams complexion soaps and Dorothy Gray Salon Cold Cream were used to remove this dirt. The Geiger counter proved that Dorothy Gray Salon Cold Cream cleanses up to two and a half times more thoroughly than any soap or other cleansing cream tested. When you cleanse with Dorothy Gray Salon Cold Cream, you know you remove dirt. And more important, you remove every trace of makeup which can clog your pores. That's why Salon Cold Cream is especially recommended for a young complexion. A clean skin is a healthy skin, and your skin will look smoother and clearer when you use Dorothy Gray Salon Cold Cream. It's so quick and easy, too. Takes no more time than improper cleansing. For particulars of this Geiger counter story, write for this test booklet to Dorothy Gray Limited, Box 18, Grand Central Station, New York City. We 
measure things by what we are. To the maggots in the cheese, the cheese is the universe. To the worms in the corpse, the corpse is the cosmos. How then can we be so cocksure about our world just because of our telescopes and microscopes and the splitting of the atom? No. Science is but an organized system of ignorance. There are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. What do we know about the beyond? Do we know what's behind the beyond? I'm afraid some of us hardly know what's beyond the behind. <laughs> Creatures of twilight and delusion, we drift toward our unknown ends. And that's why I feel the best thing is not to be born. <laughs> But who is as lucky as that? <laughs> to whom does it happen? Not to one among millions and millions of people. <laughs> In these days of darkness and doubt, of crisis and confusion, what the world needs is a truly great soul. I am that soul. <laughs> my name, as you may have guessed, is Theodore. I come from a strange stock. The members of my family were mostly epileptics, <laughs> vegetarians, stopperers, triplets, nail biters. That was Brother Theodore, the madman of the monologue, orator, actor, and purveyor of humbug, not to mention a master of chess. He was once called a rabble-rouser without a cause. He called his own act stand-up tragedy, And that might also describe a lot of his life. But he seemed to keep going with humor and nonsense. Quote, I've gazed into the abyss, and the abyss has gazed into me, and neither of us liked what we saw. And on another occasion, he said, It's my sincere wish that after my death, my head be severed and replaced with broccoli. It's the artist in me. But let's hear the opinion of some famous people about Theodore. Starting with Henry Gibson, then Dick Cavett, And finally, Joe Dante. I think I first became aware of him when I was in, uh, in college in the 50s. I was in college in Washington, D.C., and uh, a drama major. I'd been a kid actor all my life, but I thought it was important also to, to go through the formality of, uh, of you know, growing at, at university. And some fellow students there told me that on a recent trip to New York, they had encountered this... They didn't know how to describe this, this man who was, who was a master of, of some kind of performance art in the village, and, and I should really come to New York some weekend. And I really wasn't sure what, what I was seeing. And on reflection now, I, I think I can understand something. It's like what it must have been uh, people's exposure to, to great art the first time perhaps the audience of, of, of Stravinsky, the first time they heard him, or the people who were exposed to uh, Picasso's first dabbling in cubism. 
You didn't know what you were seeing, but you knew that it was important. You, you couldn't interpret it, but it was forceful and it compelled you and it drew you in. It, he, he was, he's never been a, 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 an artist of mass art for a mass audience, Even, although he uh, attained popularity on, uh, through his many appearances on Merv Griffin. But, but it's, I think he's an acquired taste. And when the lights went up and there he was, it was goose pimple making. He was so dramatic without having spoken yet. And he began to think, this might be a madman who might be on the brink and something awful might happen in the next minute. To me, that's almost the essence of good acting and good theater, a sense of danger. What? Wow, what's going to happen? And on a couple of his tirades, people got scared. They started to laugh, and then they thought, he's over the top. They're going to take him away. He was, it was believable, I guess. Absolutely. He was such a genius performer. And, and you thought, uh, you thought it, it's a madman. But in the same sense that you could think Olivier is a madman as Richard III and someone else and, and other, any other great Brando or whatever, he had that absolutely chilling, magnetic, scary sense of danger that makes a great, thrilling performance. But you had to see him in person to get the full impact, as you had to see Lenny Bruce or any, oh, any great from Mort Saul. You, uh, what is in the air between you and them, with nothing in between you, is somehow wonderful with a great. No, and he, he really was so convincing and so scary and so otherworldly on stage that I think most people were a little afraid of knowing him, even though you might have met him and said hello and so on and so on. It was hard to believe you could turn all of that off. I, I, have, I have no idea what it means to get Brother Theodore, uh, because I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to describe, you know, his act. It, it's, it's an, it was an indescribable act. It was not um, a normal, you know, cabaret kind of a thing. Uh, it was a rant. I mean, he would just rant, and um, it was a, a an evening of the macabre, I believe it was billed as, and that right. yeah. and it was um, it was plenty macabre, and and it was if you had a head it to him, it was a one man show, you know, it's a guy in a candle basically, and uh, he he was mesmerizing, you know, he it's, it was just fascinating, and apparently it was the toast of the town. Apparently, if everybody was. Uh, all the celebrities were going, oh, we got to see Theodore, you know, he's really weird. You know, I mean, who knows what, I mean, 1947, what were people thinking about the, that act, you know? I mean, how much of the, the war years and the dark past of, of his was he bringing, you know, to bear on this, on this performance? And, and what, was it registering with people? Were they getting it? Were they, were they understanding where it came from? And, or even what it was. He had, he had a pretty unique stage presence and it was also a pretty unique personal presence. I mean, there was a lot going on with this guy. I mean, we, you know, we now know that he had, you know, the, the, the kind of childhood and the kind of young adulthood that he had and, and that that colored, obviously, his, his view on life and, and pushed him into a rather dark corner. I used to see Theodore uh, in the, um, the ads of The Village Voice. Uh, there, was a, there was a caricature of him and he used to play in Village 
when I guess the, I guess the late '60s. Uh, he was there. Every, I can't remember the name of the cafe, but it was it could have been Cafe Wa, or it could have been some other place. But uh, there was always a little ad in the Village Voice, always the same size, always pretty much in the same place. And um, I remember we, some friends of mine, when we were in college, went out and checked out the show. Uh, and as usual, I mean, as everybody says, I mean, it was a unique program and he had a very unique style. Uh, and uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was one of those weird things that you just had to do, you know, in the late 60s. Well, people didn't know what to think. I mean, it was very Andy Kaufman in its, in its day. You know, it was like, you know, how can, I, how can I get these people to react in a way that they've never reacted before? You know, how can I, I, I do they think I'm putting them on? Do I, they not think I'm putting them on? I mean, how far can I go with them? And I, I think he was a pioneer in that. I don't think anybody was doing that. I mean, Lenny Bruce was doing stuff, but it was, it was different. It was very issue-oriented, and it was, he was pushing the envelope in a different way. But, but uh, Theodore was, was pushing it really in a performance art kind of a, a direction. But I never imagined that I'd actually meet the guy and work with him 25 years later. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I did this movie, The Burbs, um, at Universal, and it was a, um, it was a black comedy about uh, people who move in next door to, the, to a family and, and, and everybody thinks that they're up to weird stuff because they're strange people. And it turns out they are. Um, it wasn't originally the way it was going to end. But, uh, and uh, we needed, there was a, a particular character um, who was like the, the paterfamilias of the family and uh, Uncle Reuben. And we saw a number of character actors, uh, you know, who have worked a lot in movies like Leon Askin we saw and Louis Beyond Hogan's Heroes. And, and Timothy Carey, who was uh, a, a villain in many a Kubrick picture and, and uh, was quite a trip. Uh, but we uh, ultimately decided on Theodore because there was just something ineffably weird about him. And uh, we, I think we signed him without even meeting him. I think we just, uh, when the idea came up, uh, his name was proposed, we just went for it. Perfect actor to direct. I mean, he just he directed him and he did it. He did it his way. He did it Brother Theodore's way. Um, and and the only problem he had was that he was a little hard of hearing, and so it was difficult for him to respond to cues sometimes. And, and, and on occasion, the actors off screen would have to say certain words really loud, so that he would then be able to catch where he was. But um, aside from that, you know, which is you could say is sort of an old age thing that any actor could get into. Um, he was a very sweet guy to me. I, 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 we, had a, we had a little sort of handler person to keep him company and make sure that he was okay all the time. And, and uh, he played a lot of chess, uh, but mostly he, mostly he kept to himself. I, it would be a shame if The Burbs is the most popular or lo widely seen thing that he ever did, which it may be. Uh, and, uh, because that's not really who he was. That was that's sort of a, him playing a parody of who he is, and playing it well. But but I uh, but the thing that was phenomenal about him was his act that he did. And he wasn't doing his act; he was doing sort of a parody of his act. Uh, and I don't know where you would go to to see or to get the real feeling of what it was like to watch him live. Uh, I, the time I had with him, uh, I, I just thought he was a, a wonderful guy. Um, and, and you couldn't even, he was so eager to please, I mean, he was so eager to have it be good and to be good in the part that uh, it was kind of endearing. My friends, I'm here tonight to show you the way.
I'm here tonight to share a great truth with you. I'm here tonight to dehypnotize you, to free you from a deadly collective obsession. I'm a voice for those who dare not speak. I'm a cry for hearts that suffer in silence. And I'm here tonight to tell you what needs to be told. I feel an itch for public service, and I've got to scratch it. In this best of all possible words, everything is in a hell of a mess. Everyone knows it. Everyone has a different explanation for it. But all these explanations are bunk. Not money, or the lack of it. Not the atom bomb, or the hydrogen bomb, or the cobalt bomb are responsible for our plight. Not capitalism or socialism, not militarism or pacifism, not cannibalism or ventriloquism. None of these are to blame. None of these are at fault. They are mere symptoms, they are mere manifestations of an evil that is deeper rooted. The true cause of our problems and pains, the basic cause of our headaches and heartaches, and torments and turmoils and calamities and crimes, the real cause has been hidden from us hidden by the very men who are supposed to enlighten and protect us, the medical profession. I accuse medical science. I say medical science is a fraud, an organized system of ignorance. I say medical science is a conspiracy, a premeditated idiocy. Its practitioners have betrayed us. Every day they give us a new theory. Today contradicts yesterday, tomorrow will wipe out today. A torrent of trash in Niagara of nonsense. After 10,000 years, we are still living in an age of pills and legalized butchery, of blood analysis, urine and psychoanalysis, of toenail and dandruff analysis. An army of know-nothing, hair-splitting, fee-splitting specialists is at war with an army of ailments. And the ailments bloom, and the specialists prosper, and the patients die, unless kept alive at the point of a gun. You are being murdered, my friends, day after day as long as you live. Never ask for whom the grave is dug. It's dug for you. You are in walking distance of your grave. But you can't see it. Tears shed by your left eye are blinding your right eye. Tears shed by your right eye are blinding your left eye. Wake up! We are not suffering from a million or more diseases, but from one disease and one only. The hidden disease the original, the fundamental disease, and it cannot be cured by chemistry or surgery, by skullduggery or blackstrap molasses. Let the doctors examine themselves. Let them have a good look at their own distorted, two-legged, upright position. They stand erect on their hind legs, but can they think straight? Their spines are caving in, their livers have putrefied, their discs have slipped, their sciatica is dislocated, 
Their noses have bulbified. What do these learned garbage cans, these boil catchers and abominationists, these troubadours of diarrhea and constipation, what do these sinister fools, these hand-picked morons, what do they know about quadrupedism, about four-leggedism? Less than a jellyfish knows about Beethoven's ninth. Back, my friends, back, I say, back to the position nature gave us in the beginning. Down, down, I say, down on all fours. That previous bit was part of a one-man show theater first performed in 1958 at the Crystal Palace in St. Louis. It explored the inevitable glory of quadrupalism. Theater did a lot of passionate pitches for the absurd, peddling crazy notions to reporters and patrons alike. The farcical was always delivered with seriousness and often anger, building an intensity like a Hitler speech. He also told gruesome lies disguised as stories, like the one about his father's business of making oil out of dogs, and how a baby was mistakenly mixed in and the oil becoming more popular than ever. Here's another short clip for your perusal. I had intended to speak tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I had intended to speak tonight on pea green pimpers. <laughs> I felt that I'm right to do so. Having had so many myself. <laughs> And over there in Europe, it was this very subject which earned me my reputation as a top conversationalist and fiery orator. <laughs> no matter when or where I spoke in those days, the crowd would storm the platform, knocking each other down, simply to get near me and tighten my suspenders. <laughs> Mothers would hold up their unborn brats <laughs> and shout for a blessing. Duchesses would laugh shrilly and dance like dervishes. Princesses would roll on the ground and beseech me for strictly personal treatment. Husky men would turn aside to hide their tears. And wherever I went, the sick in heart, same-day cleaners, women's clubs, horse flies would follow me in a whirlwind of ecstasy and settle down upon my shoulders. Americans are different, not quite so emotional, as an audience more conservative, more Shakespearean-minded, less pimply-conscious. <laughs> and that's probably why it was suggested that I now select something which comes closer to your conception of sophisticated theatrical garbage. <laughs> my first impulse was, of course, to show off with my piece de resistance, Ophelia, in her soliloquy, she what a noble mind is here overthrown. But then it occurred to me that today, as you probably know, commemorates the anniversary of the death of Billy Bright Bunneke, philosopher, metaphysician, and podiatrist, <laughs> who in 1909 died of running ears and athlete foot. <laughs> Just before kicking the bucket, 
Bönneke managed to scribble a note of poetic farewell to Anna Mümmelmann, <coughs> lady of his lifelong love. Little did he know that these last simple words were to become a milestone in German literature, were to sing on in the hearts of millions. Ladies and gentlemen, the translation you are about to hear is the only one in existence, and I hope I've succeeded in capturing some of the witching, haunting, as I might say, wombly bretzular mood of the original, <laughs> the chaste happiness of its rhythm, the locamundity of its gugu. <laughs> I uh, am afraid I can detect symptoms of idiocy in the audience. <laughs> I think, ladies and gentlemen, I think you better get sterilized or we are headed for a moronic future. <laughs> It is obvious you haven't the faintest idea what I'm talking about, and it fills me with pride and satisfaction. The place is lousy again with juvenile delinquents. Juvenile delinquents, hoodlums, unfit mothers, anti-Theodorians, criminally insane nose-picker types. Brother Theater was the toast of Greenwich Village in the 50s and 60s, and even made appearances on the Steve Allen and Joey Bishop shows. But before New York, he got his start in San Francisco during the late 40s. Brother Theodore began as just Theodore, reciting as only he could tales from Edgar Allan Poe. Before this, he had been a dock worker, and before that, a janitor for Stanford University. And if you go still further back it will lead you to the strange and the horrible. His given name was Theodore Gottlieb, and he was born in Dusseldorf, Germany, back in November 11th of 1906. His father was a magazine publisher, and the family was very rich, so until his 30s, Theodore lived the good life. He studied at the University of Cologne and went into the family business, I assume, but I don't know for sure. And he indulged a passion for chess, which he was stunningly good at, all this came to an end in 1938, when he and his family were sent to Dachau by the Nazis. There, like everyone else at the camp, he was exposed to great cruelty. This continued until Theodore traded his family's fortune for a Reichsmark and the possibility that he and his family would be free. Eventually, eight of them were killed anyway, his parents and grandmother among them. Some of the family died after returning to Germany, thinking it safe after the fortune trade. Theodore, however, went to Switzerland. On neutral soil, he used his skill at chess to hustle up money. This, unfortunately, was against Swiss law, and so he was deported to Austria. Now, of all people, Albert Einstein stepped in and helped get Theodore and his wife out of Austria and onto the campus of Stanford, where Theodore emptied wastebaskets. But just to keep his hand in, Theodore beat 30 professors at chess there, all at the same time. Now we return to Poe and Theodore's one-man show with Poe's stories. Theodore later said that for the first two weeks, he only had one person in the audience, and that was his wife, and if he hadn't given her a complimentary ticket, she wouldn't have come. But people started coming eventually, and the shows caught on. During that same time period, Theodore got bit parts in movies down in Hollywood, films like The Stranger and The Third Man, six in all, 
What drove Theodore to New York was supposedly Orson Welles' interest in Theodore's wife. Moving to New York didn't solve that problem, though, because eventually Theodore's wife left him to marry Theodore's friend and fellow immigrant, and she took her son with her. But Theodore's professional life, as we know, got better. He got himself a publicist, who Theodore met in Columbus Circle, where both men were heckling a speaker trying to refute Einstein's theory of relativity. And in the 60s, Brother Theodore reached his highest fame yet, appearing 36 times on the Merv Griffin Show. But fame is fleeting, and tastes are fickle. And in the 70s, he had fewer television appearances, and the people at his club dates dwindled. But he still had some bit parts and B-pictures. But eventually, Theodore retired from his club work. But not for long, because before the end of the decade, a Ms. Dorothy Dietrich and a Mr. Dick Brooks convinced Brother Theodore to appear at their new magic club. But worried, Theodore insisted they only charge four bucks for admission. He needn't have worried. His one-man shows there were a success, and he continued on for three years. Let's stop for a moment and hear some small bits from Theodore's later movies. Then they made a children's show that emphasized discipline. Instantly, the forest turned black. Peach! And a giant bat came and baked him in an oven and ate him for dinner, limb by limb, organ by organ. What a night. Now, uh, what's the moral of the story? Hmm? I mean, what does the story teach us? I'll tell you. Obey your mommy and daddy, always, or else terrible things will happen to you, ghastly things, ghoulish things, ghoulish and grotesque, especially at night. The show was so terrifyingly effective on test audiences of young children, that several of the preschoolers had to undergo psychiatric treatment. The studio received an unprecedented amount of hate mail. They have come. They are here. Who? The musicians you have booked for the claret room. Lots of fresh, young blood. Musicians? I... I have a favor to ask, Miss Nocturna. Not another day, Theodore. No. Look at my hand. Oh, it must be a full moon again. Yes. I need the rest of the night off. All right. Why not hunt with me, Nocturna? Together, we could share the thrill of pouncing on warm bodies, tearing flesh, sucking blood, and more, much more. I'm sorry, Theodore. You'll have to do your hunting alone. Am I never going to be a little yum-yum? 
Herr Schnuzi-Putzi, Herr Schnapsi-Wapsi, is she never going to molest me? Is she never going to invade my bed and abuse me carnally? Nocturna, you shall be mine. Come hell or holy water. My precious, it is my precious. Hello, my precious. Blesses and splashes, food for my precious. What is that noise, my precious? my precious, a tasty morsel, it would make us, what is it, my precious? I am Mr. Bilbo Baggins, I've lost my dwarves, my wizard, and my way. During the Magic Club time, Theodore appeared on Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show, and then in the 80s, he went on to appear 16 times on the David Letterman Show. He was a somewhat household name again, and work was plentiful. He appeared on The Burbs, his biggest movie yet. There was voiceover work and radio work, and he continued to perform in clubs to just a few years before his death. And yes, unfortunately, Brother Theodore walks the earth no more. He died on April 5th in 2001, having reached the age of 94. I miss Brother Theodore and his ludicrous grandeur. He was a unique performer and writer with a fantastic voice. He lived in luxury and in hardship, but never lost his sense of humor or sense of perspective. When about to go in for an operation, he told a friend, If I die, best wishes for the rest of your life. If I don't, I'll phone you. Theodore's headstone reads, Known as Brother Theodore, Solo performer, comedian, metaphysician. As long as there is death, there is hope. Are you a believer in the occult? Do you you see you mentioned some of us walk in darkness. Does that? Uh... Yeah, this this was a hint that. Uh, well, I should say that until very recently, I would never have believed that I could get interested in any kind of metaphysical goulash. <laughs> I think it's just plain nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet, lately I've become quite involved in psychic vibrations. I vibrate whenever I get a chance. (laughs) I'm full of psychic fluid. I foretell the future. I predict the past. And I don't need a crystal ball, a football, a tennis ball, a moth ball, any old ball will do. When the power is upon me, there is no holding me back. I just let loose and prophesy all over the place. I think it's a prophet. Also, it runs in the family. My mumsy and my papsy both died years before I was born. <laughs> and my, my sister and my uncle were identical twins. 
which is probably more than you can say for yourself. <laughs> right? You got me there, right. that's for sure. David. Yes, sir. If I, if I seem strange, I, I won't be around much longer. They are after me. Who is that? A secret noodle ring in Minnesota. A secret noodle ring in Minnesota. They want to bump me off because I know too much. My life is threatened from one end to the other. What, what is it you know too much of, exactly? What? This is their idea. Oh. But look here. I crush them all. I'm telling you here, I crush them all. I, I, I'm, I'm not to be sneezed at. I'm nothing to be sneezed at. I'm a somebody in the century of nobodies. I've always known it, and now I've said it, and now you know it too. That's right. Now, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, if you doubt my words, just look at me now. At the age of 86, not 83, at the age of 86, no wrinkles, no pimples, no pus, no pestilence, at the age of 86, I'm often mistaken in the half-light for 43. At the age of 86, I spent unforgettable nights in hotel and motel rooms and contemplate neighbors until the wee-wee hours of the morning. It electrolyzes my body. Let me say, it expands my mind. It shrinks hemorrhoids and asteroids. <laughs> You're, now, you're, you're not 86. Tell me, David, are you publicly telling me that I'm a liar? Uh, no. Are you publicly telling me that I'm a liar? I promise, ladies and gentlemen, I promise that I will be very nice and very courteous to David because he's well-meaning, he seems to like me. As a matter of fact, he's a fan of mine. But when he said to me, I'm a liar... <laughs> no, no, I didn't I say... Ha but please! Don't bang nothing. My skies were black, but you made them gray again. So what can I say again, my dear? My fire was out, but you made me smoke again. A 
eyes were black, but you made them gray. Stengel and George Weiss take a close look at the Yankees in training, and old Case is looking ahead to a sixth straight world championship. Could be. But before then, there are a few questions to ask, like who's on first? Joe Collins, Bill Scoran, Frank Ligia, or Eddie Robinson, late of Philadelphia, wearing that old number 36 now that Johnny Mize has retired. Johnny Sane is also retired, but the champs are still knee-deep in talent and the team to beat. Hank Bauer is back, and Yogi Berra... And Gene Woodling, a powerful lineup with Gil McDougald adding more power. Bill Dickey gives a few pointers to rookie Elston Howard, the first Negro player on the team. And for pitching, well, there's Whitey Ford, 18-game winner last year, and Allie Reynolds looking for another good year himself. From Philadelphia, the Yanks acquired the big right-hander, Harry Bird. Question, will Bird fill Vic Rashi's shoes? Vic was sold to the Cardinals in one of the big surprise deals of the winter. If the longtime Yank has a good year, the Yankees might regret it, and Cardinal manager Eddie Stanky would be glad indeed. But time will tell. The following incident takes place in the advertising department of the Los Angeles Times. Yeah, hello, Louise, yes. Did that rock and roll promoter ever show... What rock and roll promoter? You know, the one who's going to take out the full page ad. Did he ever show? I bet he didn't. Oh... He did, huh? Well, will you please tell him that he is um, six minutes late by my watch, and my watch is um, five minutes fast? <laughs> yes, tell him that. Well, you have... I don't know what that comes... Just have him figure it out. Will you please send him in? Thank you. I can't believe these people. They either show up, or they they, they don't show up, or they, they show up, or they, they don't show up, or they... Excuse me, you show... Mr. Hickenlooper? Yes, I'm Walter Hickenlooper. Yeah, how you doing? My name is Danny Drollinger. I'm with Conquest Concerts. We do all the big rock and roll shows, you know, in the outlying areas. We did Festival de Salsa at the Orange Show Auditorium. You know, all no that stuff. We, no, we've, we've done business with you people Good. before. Well, and I came down here personally today because I want a huge full-page ad. We're doing a very big rock show out of the Big O. The Big O? What is you that, Winchell's Donuts? What's the problem, sir? Are you new to the area? No. Well, everybody around here knows there's the Big A, mm-hmm. the Big O, mm-hmm. the Big I. Mm-hmm. The Big A's Anaheim Stadium. That I know. The Big O's Ontario Motor Speedway. Ah, Ontario Motor Speedway. Okay. What's the Big I? That's me. Yeah, oh, you can write well, that down gonna, if no, you want. No, I'm not going to put that Well, it won't hurt to remember listen, it. You know, I'm going to be around in town for a while. Right okay, anyway, look. Right, it's Motor a very, very different kind of rock and roll show. No oh, smoke yeah? bombs, no oh. lasers, and most important, no opening acts. Just three headline supergroups. Oh, my goodness. Boom, 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 like that, you know? Boom, boom, yes. So I want them to have equal belling, equal weight. All right, well, the easiest way to do that 
is why don't we just list them in the order they appear? How's that? One, two, and three. Good That's idea. Okay, I like fine. the way you work. Well, thank you very much. Maybe we'll sir. do some business with you in the future. I sure hope so. Okay. All right. Well, let's start with the first act, shall we? Fine. Okay. Who's on first? Mr. Hagelooper, mm-hmm. if my secretary has already given you the information, you know, there's no sense for me to be here. I could be out booking yeah. slime in Spokane. Well, I, no, I know. So if you got it... No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. I just said who's on first. That's right. Ah, you that's see, right. We, oh, I like that name. That's that, right. It's so affirmative. It's so, so sure of itself. Don't write that's right. Hmm? That's wrong. That's wrong. Oh, it's a bit more negative, I suppose, with, with these times and all. That's wrong. Uh, Mr. Hagelooper? Mm-hmm. It's not that's right. It's not that's wrong. Well, then, who's on first? Who's on first? Who is on first? Who is on first? Who? 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 Who's on first? That's right. That's right. I got it down here. Look, Mr. Hickenlooper. Mm-hmm. You get on the Pomona Freeway. You drive your car out to Ontario Motor Speedway. Uh-huh. You get out. You give the man the ticket. You sit down in your seat. The guy on stage comes out and says, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to present who? Who? That's right. That's right. All right. It's who? a fine group as far as I'm concerned. Oh. Uh, you're upset, right? Uh, you could say I'm upset. Right. We're having a communication problem. There's nothing, there's nothing to be let's ashamed of. Let's just get this straight do. before my quaalude kicks oh, in, okay? Sorry. That's okay, all I ask. Fine. All right. Let's just... Well, then we'll start with the second act. Fine. I don't know why I didn't suggest this fine. to begin with. Okay. Who's on second? Who's on yeah, first? Wait a minute. 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 Wait a What's the name of the second act? Guess who? I, jeez, mm, I'm not familiar with the genre here. Dude, I don't I have any genre. Look, question. it's just three rock and roll acts. Uh, uh, Guess who? Uh, um, give me a chance. Um, uh, the Dingling Sisters. They're not even sisters, well, Mr. Hickenlooper. Uh, uh, Guess right. who? Um, Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods. Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods. Right, I am not running no. And Bush Gardens, pal. Let's get that straight. Right. This is Conquest Concerts. Okay. Nothing but class. Okay. Guess who? Uh, I, well, I, well, I, I can't guess who. You don't have to guess who. Well, then I won't guess who. So don't guess who. All right. All right. All right. <sighs> I will tell you something frankly, sir. What? I didn't have this much trouble with the free press. Oh, you didn't? Huh? Well, I'll tell you something frankly, sir. I didn't have this much trouble with the music center, and they put on Rigoletto one year. That's four acts. Not the year they did it. All right, now let's just move on to the third act, huh? Who, uh, mm-hmm. why, no, mm-hmm. ah, will you please tell me the name of the third act? Yes. Fine. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. You let me see a proof of the act Wednesday and we'll be... Wait a minute, where are you going? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I asked you to tell me the name of the third act. I told you the name of the third act. You want me to tell you again? Yes. That's right. That's right, it's on first. Who's on first? Guess who's on second in the third act? Yes. That's right! That's right! What's your problem? I've been writing for 11 minutes. I got nothing on the paper. That's my problem. Why don't you take the paper, you take the pen, and you write it down. Are you crazy? If I could write, I wouldn't have had to steal this bit. I would, ooh. And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. The Case of the Girl Shortstop Through the doorway of the Brown Detective Agency walked a girl with short blonde hair and an angry face. Boys are rat-thinks, she said. Nonsense, objected Sally. Some boys are very nice. Not if they play baseball, said the girl. She tossed a quarter into the air, caught it behind her back, and slapped it on a gasoline can. I've come all the way from Glen City to hire you, she said, 
I want you to find out who learned I am a girl. Huh, said Encyclopedia. Suddenly he wished he had gone fishing. The girl explained her name was Edwina Silverstein, and she was nine. She lived in Glen City. She had been the shortstop on an all-boy midget baseball team until last night. I joined up as Ed Silverstein, said Edwina. My hair is shorter than most of the boys. In a uniform and sunglasses, nobody could tell I was a girl. But somebody did, remarked Encyclopedia. One of my teammates followed me home after the game yesterday, said Edwina. I saw him peeping through the kitchen window after I'd put on a dress. And the dress put you off the team, but fast, said Sally. Two hours later, Coach Party telephoned, said Edwina. He said he was sorry, but I couldn't play. Girls are against the rules. How come you didn't recognize the peeper? Asked Encyclopedia. It was too dark, replied Edwina. Besides, he had on his baseball uniform and sunglasses. All the players wear uniforms and sunglasses, and it's hard to tell them apart. Don't you even have a tiny clue, pleaded Sally. Only this, said Edwina. She took a pair of sunglasses from her pocket. The boy tripped and fell near our fence when I chased him, she said. The sunglasses went flying. He was in too much of a hurry to pick them up. Encyclopedia examined the sunglasses. The piece of frame that hooked over the right ear was bent outward slightly. It must have got bent when the boy fell, said Sally. There are no marks or scratches, Encyclopedia pointed out. So the frame was bent before he fell down. We ought to be at the next game Edwina's team plays, said Sally. The boy without sunglasses is our man. Encyclopedia shook his head. You can buy these sunglasses in any drugstore. The guilty boy will have bought a new pair before the next game. He returned the sunglasses to Edwina. Still, it wouldn't hurt to watch a game, he added. So the following Friday, the two detectives rode the bus to Glen City. Edwina met them at the station and took them to the ball field. I asked Coach Party what boy turned me in. She said, he won't tell. Men are all the same, grumbled Sally. They protect each other. They're afraid of what women can do if they get a chance.
The children found seats in the stands as Edwina's team, the Bulldogs, finished battling in the first. Sally pointed excitedly. There's a boy without sunglasses. He's the catcher, said Edwina. He never wears sunglasses. He wears a face mask. Pooh, said Sally in disappointment. For a second, it looked like an easy case. The first batter up for the other team, the Hawks, drove the ball through the shortstop's legs. Tough one, Bob, hollered Edwina. She lowered her voice and said, I feel sorry for Bob. He was the team captain and regular shortstop last year, but he was moved to left field when I beat him out. I guess he's a little rusty. He's jealous, that's what he is, snapped Sally. Bob's our man, encyclopedia. He spied on Edwina because he wanted his old position back. Before Encyclopedia could reply, the next Hawk batter had knocked the ball for a home run. Warren's lack of control for the rest of the inning was perfect. He never missed hitting a bat except when he hit an arm or a leg. Six runs were scored. The Bulldogs should put in another pitcher, Encyclopedia said. Edwina sighed. After Warren, our pitchers get worse. The Bulldogs need worse pitchers like General Custer needed more Indians, said Sally. Don't be too hard on Warren, said Edwina. He warmed the bench till our best two pitchers were hurt last week. Coach Party made him a pitcher because he's the only left-hander on the team. She pointed to two boys sitting on the bulldog's bench. They were dressed in street clothes. One boy had his right arm in a sling. The other boy had his right foot in a cast. Both wore sunglasses. Dave broke his foot on the way home after pitching our last game, said Edwina. Phil sprained his arm rolling out of bed the next morning. They could be lying, said Sally. Either boy could have hurt himself falling by Edwina's fence. Gosh, Encyclopedia, I can't tell who's guilty. I can, replied the boy detective. The guilty boy is... Who? Warren the pitcher. The sunglasses that Edwina found were not scratched, yet the earpiece on the right side was bent outward. Thus, Encyclopedia knew the wearer was left-handed. He had used his left hand to pull off the glasses, 
causing the right earpiece to become bent outward as it pushed against his head. Had the wearer used his right hand, the left earpiece would have become bent outward. So the boy who didn't want a girl on the team was a lefty. Warren was the only lefty on the team, remember? When seen after the game, Warren had a bloody nose. He confessed, Edwina announced sweetly. And now, the poetry of the band, Black Flag. Hello there, baby. I just want to let you know I'm about to have a nervous breakdown. My head really hurts. If I don't find a way out of here, I'm going to go berserk. Because I'm crazy and I'm hurt. I got my head on my shoulders. I'm going berserk. I hear the same old talk about the same old lies. Don't you tell me that today. If you know what's good for you, you get out of my way because I'm crazy and I'm hurt. I got my head on my shoulders. I'm going berserk. I won't apologize for acting out of line. You see the way I am. You leave anytime you can because I'm crazy and I'm hurt. I got my head on my shoulders. I'm going berserk. Crazy, 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 crazy. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you can say. I'm so sick of everything. I just want to die. I love you, baby. Well, now it's time for something very special. We're going to do our first book review. Why, you ask? Well, because Mrs. Sweets gave me a book on tape for Christmas, and I just got through with it. <laughs> Which book is that now? The book is called uh, Running with the Devil, and it's a, a book by the one-time... Well, that's right, I introduced it. Yes, the one-time manager, uh, Noel Monk, and also he's a ghostwriter, uh, Joe Layden. Okay. And so this book is about the exploits of the beginnings of Van Halen, or actually the beginnings of the famous Van Halen we know. From the time that Noel was a road manager uh, to the time in 84 when he split up with the band as well as David Lee Roth's split okay. up with the band. So, That's right. I, now, when they started before, they were just like doing party bands. I had a friend in art school that had seen him at some bar, uh, some party in Pasadena that he was at. And even then, they had their big horn, whatever it was, wall of car horns or whatever to add to the music. So it's funny because he says, yeah, I've, I've, I, I met so many people that said they've seen the, the show. But actually, you probably have somebody that met the show because they were in Pasadena at oh, that yeah. time. And and they were known for their big house parties. And they were known for trashing things back then oh. and all kinds of stuff. They were that kind of band from the very beginning. It's like, <laughs> fake they it didn't have you, to get famous. Yeah, that. fake it till you make it, I guess. I don't know. But... Uh, Anyways, so they go into a little bit about that, but just the background that he, you know, he wasn't there to witness it, so he gives a little background to start the uh, the book, and it's funny because uh, I don't know the the narrator of the book on tape that I got. His name is Fred Berman, and I can't tell whether Fred Fred's a good reader, and he's he's. He's not your traditional reader. He he gets like a little bit of 
uh, like it could actually be him. They got somebody that has a voice that was that's kind of rough and tumble. Was he like performing, and basically? Not really, but he does do slightly different voices for the different people, and okay. he like does a stoner. Uh, just it's weird because it's not him doing a completely different voice. It's just his same voice in a stoner thing, or when they do David Lee Roth, he, you know, he does a manic voice, and it's it's. Uh, it puts a lot of character to it, but you know when you read something and then you listen to something like that, yeah. I just wonder how much different, how different it would be if I oh, read yeah. if I read it, because there's definitely a lot of uh, meaning in the intonation from from this okay. guy. So this is so many people could have read this book and gotten a totally different thing, but I guarantee <laughs> you, if you if you listen to this, you'd probably get the same kind of a, idea. a deal or an idea from from. Uh, from listening to it. So anyways, this guy, Noel Monk, is is a, the gentleman that uh, eventually became Van Halen's uh, second manager, but first, uh, you know, legit manager that they hired themselves. So it starts off that he was actually the road manager for just the 12-day tour for the Sex Pistols in in, oh. in America when they did they just toured the South and it was oh, twelve wow. days and he wrote a book about that and uh, he said at the time that he impressed the brass and he had a mentor at Warner at, Brothers at, uh, at, Warner, at Warner Brothers, Brothers okay. yeah so he had a mentor at Warner Brothers and he had impressed that he could even <laughs> so it, apparently it was impressive to keep those guys together for twelve days <laughs> so. He came back, got through, and he said the first thing he got, one of the guys at Warner Brothers gave him a shirt, threw him a shirt, here, Noel, and it said, I survived the Sex Pistols tour or whatever. <laughs> so he thought that was cool. And and, um, and then he got called into his manager's office, and you know they thanked him for a job well done, and he informed him, hey, this is I, I've got your next assignment. And he was ready for a vacation. He thought he was going to get a little more less time or a little more time to you know to, to relax or whatnot. But he, sure enough, he had the same thing. And he said, I think this is going to be the band for you. Uh, and it turned out to be Van Halen. And he was the road manager. So they already for, had a record contract at this they point. They did. At this point, they had a record contract. They had gone through and done all the... Uh, you know, they had played for five years together because, you know, uh, Eddie Van Halen was a, and, and even Alex, Eddie Van Halen's like a genius, basically. And, and he was a, a virtuoso pianist that won, won contests when he was a kid. And even Alex did. His, their parent, their dad was a, a, a professional musician. They were from Holland. And so they, you know, were playing when they were playing in high school and later they, they were legit good. So when they played, they played, you know, they were playing, you know, they were getting their chops. Most people don't do that in high school, but yeah. they were getting that. So by the time they signed, they were 22, but they were legit, they had played together for five years. Uh, and how they meet uh, so, David Lee Roth? So they met in junior college. It's funny, they, you know, this is a little backstory, but they met David Lee Roth in junior college and. David Lee Roth was part of another band, and he was his dad was a uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but he was a doctor. Okay. So he was a doctor, and he had a, a, like an awesome sound system, and they would rent it from him sometimes. And it kind of was like a like a little quid pro quo. He kept on wanting to be part of the band because David, he said from the beginning, wanted to be famous. He'd tell people, "I'm going to be famous. Like I'm going to be famous." That was his thing. It wasn't like I'm going to make the best rock. It was whatever. I'm going to be famous. 
And so he uh, got together with those guys. And basically, they finally said he could join the band in part, in part because he had the sound system that your buddy heard. But yeah, <laughs> you know, so he got together. And Michael Anthony was, which is the bass player, is is the uh, was a friend of theirs as well. So they they all got together, and it was David Lee Roth's idea because the band was called Mammoth, and it was David Lee Roth's idea to call it Van Halen. And I mean, he, I, they said, you know, Noel, you know, the, the, the gentleman who writes the book says, you know, he, you know, he, he realized that, you know, Eddie was going to be the center of the band, but also like he tells it, uh, David Lee Roth says, well, Van Halen was just a cool sounding name. So it, it, you know, it made sense. So they got Van Halen and they started playing gigs together and they, they played for a while and Eddie developed his sound and they developed their 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 songs and their you know their covers a catalog of stuff that they would play and they eventually signed with Warner Brothers and this is where the our story begins okay. with Noel. So Noel meets the band and it's funny because they had already done the nineteen um, not the nineteen eighty four, the Van Halen Van Halen album, their first, which is nineteen seventy eight. And uh, and that's got like running with the devil right off the bat. It's it, you know it's got a number of atomic punk. It's got it's a, it's it's I think ranked twenty three on Rolling Stone's best debut album. Oh, so wow. it's it's a it's like a spectacular first album. And plus you know nobody had heard anything like Van yeah they have, Van an, Halen, they have an interesting you know, sound. So. Yeah. So and then even David Lee Roth. It's funny because I've heard people say and he even says well they don't have they don't have the uh, you know, he doesn't have the singing chops or whatever, but he was like an amazing performer. And constantly through the book, it's it's kind of funny, but he says that as far as like traditional smarts, David Lee Roth was by heads and shoulders smarter than everybody else in the band. He's the only one that gave a damn about uh, promotion or any of that kind of stuff. And for the beginning of the beginnings of the band, when they weren't on drugs, I mean, they were on drugs always, but were always smoking dope and not like doing coke and all the other stuff. They, he was instrumental in making the band famous. David Lee Roth would had a nose for promotion, would come up with ideas on how to how to come into events like, hey, let's all ride motorcycles and like we'll get. <laughs> and they they got the local Harley Davidson club and all rolled up rolled up in. Uh, you know, on motorcycles to a an event at a record store, all, you know, and all different stuff like that. And it was David Lee Roth that, that uh, you know, came up with those ideas and nobody else really cared. Like Eddie is kind of introvert, just wanted to have, Make you know, play. Music. He basically just wanted to noodle around with the guitar and, and kind of, when he gets homesick, he, he has a story where, where, no, Noel, he would come in and he would sit on Noel's lap, and there's a grown man sitting on Noel's lap. I love you, man. He's all like torn up. They were constantly on drugs. It's that's that's part of the story. Let's go back to the beginning. You, you, can, you can read. You can read the story about the sex and drugs. I'm more interested in in the rock and roll aspect and the business aspect. So that's what we'll talk about. Right. And this is a long winded intro, but we're going to talk about kind of you know, the top five or ten revelations in the book that I thought were the most interesting. Um, and honorable mention is Steve Perry of Journey was on, they were on their first tour, and it was Steve Perry, you know, Journey. They were, op they were, opening, they, they for were opening for Journey and for Montrose. 
uh, and Montrose. I don't really know Montrose. Montrose. He he actually had uh, it was right after Sammy Hagar was was the lead singer of Montrose, oh, okay. but not that was before he had left the band and Montrose was just like trying to do. He was a guitar player and he was trying to you know do his last hurrah thing. So he was the middle act, and Steve and Journey were were the were just taking off. They had been you know doing stuff and and uh, just taking off and and. Those guys were always partiers, Van Halen, and they're in the back, and they're done with their set, so they're eating their craft food. There's some guacamole and some jelly beans or whatever, and Steve Perry uh, comes out, and uh, uh, Noel comes in. He's the road manager at this point, and he comes into the dressing room, and everybody's silent, and they're like, and he's like, okay, what the F just happened? <laughs> and he goes... Uh, and everybody just won't say anything. And he goes in and he goes, where's Steve? And Steve's in the bathroom crying because they were had a food fight and threw guacamole on him. <laughs> and he's like, holy crap, we're going to get fired from the tour. Because at this point, he had enough say to say yeah. that. So he did go in there and like clean them all up and talk them down from the ledge and get them a new jacket. And then like went out and, and uh, you know... Basically saved Van Halen from being on the tour and then also, you know, saved Steve Perry from having to go out with a guacamole stained <laughs> outfit. So that's honorable mention. Um, but the, Anyway, we're back when he just becomes their, now just the tour he's, manager he's just at this a, point? He's just a tour manager. Of their first tour. Of their first tour. And it's the, you know, the Van Halen tour. And, and uh, he's got all kinds of, uh, there's all kinds of exploits with like I said, drugs and, and and you can imagine anything you can think of as far as women and drugs and including and, taking penicillin every day. <laughs> oh yeah, so they they know they did monthly trips to the doctor. He said they and got penicillin. They sometimes they would get the doctor to come on the road and and administer penicillin treatments. It was before AIDS, they're so that part, was they're, like, they're part of the giant. Uh... <laughs> they definitely uh, caused uh, penicillin to not work as well. Let's put it that way. Almost single handedly. Yeah, but. So, yeah, so the, the whole time he's doing a great job for, for those guys. He's solving problems. He's doing all this kinds of stuff. the first tour. Yeah, the first tour. And their real manager is just somebody that was appointed by oh, Warner. Warner Brothers. And he's not showing up. There's stuff that's going wrong. Just little stuff. But the manager should be taking care of it. And he's taking care of it. He's not taking care of it to take his job or to do anything, just to because he's there on the road manager and he has to get things going. And it's anything from when you have a three-person tour, a three-act tour, the headliner sets up in the back, the guys, the oh, yeah. middle sets up in the middle, and the front of the stage is barely enough, like ten feet or something, for the the small band, and uh, and Montrose would out, be out there, you know noodling around with his guitar for an hour and they would have to set up and they wouldn't get any time to rehearse and they had he had to he had to get all his roadies and <laughs> confront him and just all kinds of weird stuff like that he would just be solving problems and they always saw him doing that he's always solving problems always getting him out of trouble keeping him out of jail he'd he'd grease the cops all kinds of stuff and uh so they got to know him and trust him and they ended up you know, having a, they ended up going on the last leg of the tour to Japan, and Japan uh, is a very expensive place. You, you know, yeah. it's it's crazy. It's more expensive than Europe as far as the dollar goes, and 
the Especially manager then. flew in, their manager at the time flew in and said, this tour went so well and your album's selling so great because it went platinum and did all this crazy stuff. And he he made it seem like he was taking everybody out to dinner and 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 Noel's like in his in his head go man this is pretty magnanimous this is like thousands of dollars or whatever so the next day he's got all the business receipts and they're settling up and he has the receipt for the for the dinner and he says oh here's the receipt for that and he's like well what's that for and he goes, oh, I, I thought you were taking the boys out. He's like, I did, but just put it with the rest of the receipts, which meant it was going to get charged back to, the, to, to the band. It comes back that at the end of that tour, and they were smashing stuff and doing crazy stuff, but this is kind of how the music system works, is at the end of the tour, Van Halen owned, owed, because of their contract and because of all the money they spent, a million and a half dollars. Oh man! To Warner Brothers, after selling platinum and you know all this kind of stuff, and so they were pissed, and you know they basically ended up saying we want you to be manager, Noel, and and Noel to his credit said, you know what, I want you to be, you know, I would love to be your manager, but I want you to interview the big guys because you guys are going to be a, a big band, and you need to interview Kiss's manager and like some other guys he he yeah. mentioned, and. And and they all they he goes you need to go so they went back to L A they interviewed a bunch of people and all of them kind of turned them off they were too big or what what have you and they ended up going with this guy and from that point on that was their seven year journey on crazy so in eighty in seventy nine he became their manager and the first thing he did was explain the contract to him this is one of my favorite parts of the book is they explained the contract to him that they signed and it's a terrible contract it's about half of what they're worth or they could be worth on the open market so they're you know making 50 percent of what they could be and the contract is so bad because they have the option to perpetually pick up albums after they're they have oh. a two they have a two album deal and then they have an option to pick up two more albums after that. And after that option, they have an option to pick up two more albums after that. In, in, and the in band perpetuity. has nothing to say about it. Nothing. They signed the contract. And he's like, well, we could sign this. I mean, sorry, rather. Well, we could try to defeat this in court. But what I think we should do, and he goes, I know these guys, so this might work. <laughs> he goes, we're just going to call them constantly and bombard them with stupid things like what you guys want and need all this crazy stuff, like uh, they're not getting enough airtime. They're not, whatever. Just like everything you could think of. And, and he's like, they're not going to even want to take our calls. And, and, is that and, and he, goes, he goes, no, what's going to happen is they're going to, he's like, hopefully they'll forget about us or they'll, you know, whatever. And they won't pick up the option. They'll, they'll miss the date, right? <laughs> and he's like, this is a long shot. But he said, like he said, he goes, I know these guys and it might work but it's a long shot and then after that we got you know we'll just have to do it or we'll you know accept it or you know basically do this long court battle thing so sure enough they missed the option <laughs> and he walks in to the, his former boss <laughs> the Warner Brothers and says he's like hey this is great and they're small talking and he goes hey so uh so we're gonna we're gonna pick up the contract or whatever. So actually, you guys don't have a contract with us. 
you guys missed the date to pick up the option. And the guy, I guess, was real heavy. And he's like, he told him to shut the F up. And he goes, when that guy told you something, I shut the F up. But then he started asking their, their lawyer, uh, Van Halen's lawyer, which he says in the book, Noel, that he goes, I, I bet you this guy thought he had our lawyer in the pocket too, but I made sure that he did it. <laughs> and so he didn't tip it off. And so he ended up getting them out of their contract just by luck or whatever. But it basically made them millions of dollars in the end. And so did Warner Brothers re-up a new contract? They did, but they were going to go on the open market. But then they did a real, like, you know, a, a front-line contract to them. And they got the residuals that they would, uh, that they deserved being the band that they were going to And I'm be. sure they wrote it so that they, the... the they got all the money, or at least more money, when they traveled. So here's the second thing that I love about this guy. He grew up in the garment district in, in New York. like, And his dad worked in Manhattan, the garment district. And uh, at that time, there were just licensees that would do your promotional gear and your, you know, your uh, T-shirts and all that kind of stuff. He said, you know what, I think we can make this money. Again... If we just have somebody do it for us, we can do it. But what I'd like to do is actually run it ourselves. Run the business, get the t-shirts, do all that stuff. He's like, we can make about twice as much as we can make just doing it or the, the thing. And it'd be worth it. And he said it was a little, a little hard setting it up. But once they got started, in 1981, they said they were pulling a night in cash, $250,000. Just on the swag. Just on swag, man. And he said in in a weekend, he could be carrying in cash three quarters of a million dollars. Wow. And that was all there. And he goes, he goes, and he goes, and these guys, he goes, this is how we made money because it was almost impossible. And then against all odds, we made money because they were smashing hotel rooms and doing drugs and going crazy. And... Uh, there's a there's a uh, um, a story he tells where they're literally playing at a festival and it's at a stadium and they have to get in a limo to ride from the front of the stadium to the back of the stadium <laughs> so that they can start and he gets in and it's a nice French limousine and you can tell that the guy that the guy that owns it is the owner and that's his one car and that's how he makes his living. And they systematically start just smashing crap and tearing just things up. Just that short spot. In, in that thing, they like did who knows how much damage. But it was like they broke half the door. Like, like did all kinds of crazy stuff. And then he let him get out. And he, he, he like who knows? But he wrote it himself. So I mean, he's gonna paint himself in a better light. But he seems like a genuinely good guy, and he cared about stuff like that. So he let him leave, and he goes, "Listen, sir, there's no good explanation." For this, <laughs> you can just imagine him trying to explain this. But again, he said, well, "I'm, you know, we're going to pay for this. We're going to pay for any time loss. We're going to do all this stuff." And the guy's like, "You can do that." And he's like, "I most certainly can." <laughs> and he's, so, yeah, so, you control their money. So. Yeah, and and so uh, you know, so they did that, and uh, and there were stories like that where he was getting people out of trouble and even the crews the crews were in um the south one time and they were destroying it's so funny the they, crew they, the, the roadies, crew, were the roadies the, and they were new roadies uh. and they destroyed a hotel room right and here's the funniest part they destroy a hotel room 
Nobody even cares. They're paying for the roadies, doing all kinds of stuff, solving all this stuff. The one thing they did, <laughs> he walks in. And and Noel's a, uh, you know, a Jewish guy. He walks in and <laughs> got the Bible ripped up all around the room and the cops are standing there. And this is the Deep South. And he's like, I look around and I go, what the F are you guys thinking? Like, that's the limit. Of, co of, of course it is. But, you know, it's just like, because of all this debauchery going on. That's going to be the limit or what? You know, I don't know. It just seems like a quainter time, apparently, when that was the limit. But anyway, so he had to, like, tell, tell the cops. He goes, can I, you know, talk to you? He goes, well, here's what's going to happen. We're going to, they're going to go right now. They're going to, I'm, they're going to be fired, and they're never going to work in this business again. I can assure you. And they're and they're waiting. He goes, the cops were waiting for more, and this will all be charged to them. And they're like, all right, if you do that, we'll let them go with you. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't lie. He fired them or whatever. So oh, it wasn't yeah. like he because well, they were new people. The band so can get a, away with yeah. The roadies, come on, you can get roadies. Well, they had they had a couple roadies that were like best friends with the band from high school. Those guys you couldn't get rid of. But everybody else, yeah, who you know, are you smoking crack? Apparently, yeah, because they were they were high, man. Because, yeah, it's so much. It's so crazy. He said that he was in. They did a leg of, and it, this was kind of near the end, maybe eighty three, and they did a leg, a, a, a just a month long tour, and it was in. South America, and they did uh, 16 or 20 days in 30, 20 concerts in 30 days. And, it, and that was like actually a kind of a low-key um, event because they were do maybe two days off in a month and they would do, wow. you know, do all this crazy <laughs> stuff. And they ended up where they had to pay for protection and they would have like these crazy bodyguards all around them. And he said he asked for a tour and they give him a tour of their, like what would be their CIA, all this underground stuff and, oh oh, and like crazy things. And he goes, the, near the last night I'm at, I'm at a uh, dinner with all of them and they kind of like just chuckle and they're all talking to themselves. And then they finally ask him, Hey, uh, so how many people have you killed? To him? <laughs> to him. And he's like, uh, nobody. <laughs> and they all laughed like they bet on it or whatever. And he just realized that he was like that. These guys were on the death squads and freaking oh, whatever, wherever they were in South America. And he's like, it chilled my bone. I, I couldn't eat the rest of the night or whatever. They played at a concert venue where it had been where they rounded people up, you know, the the pro not protesters, but the rebels up and shot them all. And all. It, they played at that. They place. played at that place. And it was you know, 10 years earlier, whatever. But he said Still. it was very eerie. And it's like playing a Dachau. Oh, no, yeah, exactly. Or Auschwitz or something. Like, crazy. He said he said it was, being Jewish, it was very, like, he would take those into consideration. It would, it would bother him because they would go all over the place. And they said they wouldn't play because it was the 80s. It's like, I'm not playing in Sun City in South Africa. But like, they would play that. We're not do well, they didn't realize like he didn't realize that, but he oh, okay. did realize that and they're like we're not doing that, but they said, "Well, will you come down for a promotional thing to South Africa?" And apparently when they got down there, they convinced them they got down to uh, South Africa. And the Warner Brothers office there was all diverse and, you know, they, you know, so he was happy to help those people out cuz they were giving people jobs that 
that otherwise, you know, may not have that opportunity. So he he was, at least he was. So they played there? Or no? <laughs> they did not play there, but they went down and just promoted the record. Oh. Um, but he said on the way there, they um, they were, you know, they were flying and, and they, they were flying there and the airplane made an unofficial stop didn't tell him anything and people in gas masks and stuff came in and like sprayed the whole jet and then left and he's and like no explanation he was, what he's like i guess that's what it's to be deloused right like it's like <laughs> it could have been ddt i could have been like yes of course so oh he was mad at the at the guy that made him made him uh land do that that well, was on the way there that was on the way there so they were all scared so alex van halen and david lee roth had gone with them and they said they decided that they were going to play a trick on the gentleman that that convinced them to go so they sent a, a, a fax that said uh or yeah they sent a fax and it said from the from the represent the head warner brothers representative in south africa sent a a fax to the head guy in Warner Brothers that had in L.A. That in L.A. Do you have the money for David Lee Roth yet? Like the 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 high. You don't know how long I can hold these negotiator the hostage takers <laughs> off or whatever. And, and they started getting calls and all this stuff. And then they had him going for like ten minutes, and then like they couldn't stop. They just laughed, and he's like, "Give me the phone to like whatever." And he made him put David Lee Roth on the phone and make sure that everybody was all right. And he's like. Got super mad, but then ended up. And he goes, the one guy that was just like the low level guy that was helping him. He goes, "All right, I, I want you to know that this was not my idea, and I still want to have a job." <laughs> <laughs> hey, now was this manager Noel? Was he? He wasn't um, organizing their concert. Was it Warner Brothers? He was still doing no. He together? was doing all of that. But in in behest of that, or were they running their own concert at this point? No, so they were in because now they were in the big guys do their no, own concerts. Yeah, so no, it was still Warner Brothers was was doing oh, okay. that. So they still had that, and uh, well, even in the seventies when when I saw the the documentary for um, the Eagles, and they got a whole fleet and got their owned all their oh, buses, their and owned their airplanes, all that. And that's they probably because of Geffen, <laughs> you know, because he was their manager at that point. Yeah, who knows? But they did. They just owned everything, and then they they started making money hand over fist because they, you know, they they literally were were getting whatever the profit was. They weren't have to split with anything. But it, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's pretty funny because the guy was pretty ingenious. He he, you know, it's it's a pretty famous story that they requested. Um, that the brown M and M's be taken off out of the M and M's. For what's called a rider, and the rider's the the sheet of things that they ask for their, at demands, each, their yeah. demands, basically. And he said, "Yeah, we did that." And the funny thing is, it got us all no- notorious, and you know, like we were super, you know, Picky. unreasonable and prima donnas. But I did that on purpose. He did that on purpose because he was finding that they were leaving out. Um, they were like not following instructions on the stuff that would actually oh. make them unsafe. 
So they're still so, happy on the safety. So he decided, they got in his head that, hey, I'm going to put some of this stupid crap in there. And if they follow that and I know that's there, I'm going to be pretty confident that they did the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so the band didn't even know about it. It was him. They got together and he told them. But, you know, and of course, those guys were always willing to be unreasonable because <laughs> that's their personality. Um, it was interesting because you get to know a little bit about, you know, everybody's personality and... and uh, they always said Michael Anthony was the bass player. Was always the sweetest guy. Never caused any problems. Nothing the whole time. He was like always there. Like he was just lucky. Like you know, like they say Ringo is the luckiest man in the world or whatever. And, and uh, you know, it was like that. Oh, Mark Anthony's just there, and he's just happy to be there. Never caused any problems. And and near the end of his tenure, they all came in together, and and uh, not Michael Anthony, but the other three band members, and said because. Eddie Van Halen wrote the music. Alex was Eddie's brother. That's that's the only thing. And David Lee Roth wrote all the lyrics and sometimes the melody. So, and they they wanted to write him out of future uh, revenue for uh, residuals for the 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 thing. Basically, turn him into not a partner, an employee. And they did it, and the guy signed it. Like Michael Anthony signed it. And so everything after that point, but not no, before that. No, check it out. It was for 1984 album, and they wanted it to to include the 1984 album that he was already a part of. And they wrote it up, and the guy actually signed it. He's like, that much of a, like, okay, whatever. Like, but the previous albums, no. No, he got for the first. But if you had a 1984, that was the biggest one, and every other one, who cares? Because <laughs> those were, the, you know, all the... He would have been on every one that had... Uh, David Lee Roth, which if he would have done the '84, correct, and so oh, okay, that would have uh, well, been the best. He still made tons of dough, so no, and he does, and he's you know, uh, it's come to the point where when they kicked him out of the band because they ended up, oh, they kicked him out. Well, so I'm talking about Michael Anthony. This That's is I mean. way after, way after David Lee Roth ended. This was like 25 years into the band or something. Wolf Wolfgang Van Van Halen, which is uh, Eddie's son, plays bass, so they wanted him to play. And they didn't even tell him. They just like said, "Hey, we're gonna have a tour," and that's how he found out that he wasn't in the band on, on like basically on the on the, he just saw the podium like we would see it, like the press conference, and uh, and then Eddie came. He kind of did this crazy thing where he told people that that. Uh, Oh, I had to teach him all of his bass parts, and he came over with a video camera, and um, you know, he he basically just made him look terrible, and made himself look terrible too. But then Sammy Hagar got on there, and they're they're, they're love lost anymore. He's gone from that band. He caught on and said he was like on YouTube, and the next thing he goes, "Hey, this is bullshit. This is not what happened. I was in the band for eleven years." There's no cameras, nothing like that. That never happened. Why would he say that? Because this guy wasn't making trouble, like coming on and complaining. Not at all. Nothing. Just to make his son look good or make himself look better because why did he get rid of that guy and be such an ass? Yeah, they actually, you know, Eddie Van Halen was married to Valerie Bertinelli. Yeah. And so they were married for 20 years, and she was on Howard Stern. I heard her speaking, and, and she, and, you know, I mean, you defend your son or whatever, but she's like, Oh well, it's not just whatever. He's a great bass player, or whatever, and it, and it, it it could be it could be a better one, but that's not a good enough reason to do that. No, I mean, I know you love your kids or whatever, but invent a thing where they both play. 
<laughs> or know. whatever. And they said, like, he's like... Or oh. at least don't let him They're find like, out He's in he, the news conference. He's all pudgy and everything, and... and uh, like Michael Anthony, this is the thing that they didn't do. He, he was all in, like, they're all alcoholics. So he had, like, a Jack Daniels bass, and he would pour Jack Daniels over during the show and do all this crazy stuff. And people loved him. People thought he was a very integral part of the show and had a lot to say when they kicked him out of the band, you know, in, in the forums and everything. So it, it's all of those guys are weird, man. Except that guy, they he, Noel would constantly say, he goes, yeah, he was not interesting or whatever, but he, you know, and... In a good way. <laughs> yeah, right? So, I mean, he still was an alcoholic and probably did whatever, but he married his high school sweetheart. He did less of the crazy stuff. He was, he's still with his wife today. You know, I mean, like, whatever made it work, they made it work. And, and, and he still uh, got lots of money. That's a good thing. No, I know, but yeah, and then uh, they they formed like a super group, him and, and uh, Sammy Agar, called Chicken Foot, and they, they made some money off Oh, that. they're Chicken Foot? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's pretty good. That, so, that became... But he, I'm sure Sammy and him, oh, actually, Sammy and him became good friends, and they hang out and everything, because he's like, dude... They both had trouble in the band, so... Well, and but like from the beginning, him. like, he's the nicest person I think we would gravitate to him, and like, <laughs> yeah. I don't care about you fools. I'm going to go kick it with this guy who's just being cool. <laughs> I don't even care if he says two words. We're just going to hang with that guy but it was it's crazy so how many concerts was noel with them he was there for seven years and how many they almost had they almost had did they have a tour every year almost there was one year where they didn't and um you know they he was always trying it's interesting because he was always trying to give them more time for the albums because basically they would they 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 recorded the albums in three weeks, almost wow. all of them, like the first, the first four or whatever. And the funny part was, he's like, "Oh man, they they need to, you know, the first two were were real good because they had those songs already. Yeah, they already they had already, them. already had them. And then they just had to write songs and then you know, quick on the um, the you know the women and children first and uh." There was a diver down, and the diver down is the one that has uh, the cover of Pretty Woman on it. And so, you know, that was kind of a makeshift album because they had two covers and, like, you know, a few songs, and it was only 31 minutes, and, you know, it got a bad review, but it still went platinum. They all went platinum. And, uh, well, one of them wasn't going to go platinum, and they did Payola. That was the other oh. thing. So he goes, there was a whole chapter on it. It's called. Paola, I, I, Paola, I hardly know her. <laughs> but um, he ended up, you know, go, you know, their third album, I think, or fourth album wasn't going to go platinum. And they said, well, we have to go platinum. No, we're a platinum band or whatever. So they asked the promotional bar department, and they said, oh, yeah, there's a way to do it. And so then they sent them this, and they had they to... sent money to who? who? No, no, no. So they sent them down to the promotion... The, these people in their in Warner Brothers, and they told them how it works, and they said it was five thousand dollars for a major market, three thousand dollars for mid, and then like one thousand. So they for play all radios to play, or so I mean, they pay them. To isn't play. that based on album sales though? Platinum, of course. But here's the thing: they pay it, and it gets more record, airplay, and then people buy the album, and that's how oh, it used okay. to work. So that was I was getting to that. Okay. So. That was the whole system. So they ended up spending over 200, 250000 of their own money. 
and they paid Was that off. their six to help them? No, it was... They only did, I want to say, five or six albums with, with him and... and uh, but it was one of them. It's the fifth or the sixth one. I think it was the... No, I think it was the fourth one. Oh, okay. Right, and it wasn't going to go, and then... And then, so anyways, so they were doing them all in three weeks, and the last one was kind of crappy, and he said, hey, you guys, we need to spend more time on the album. We need to create a great album. So I'm going to get you the time, I promise you. And the ironic part of it is because of that time, it's really what broke up the band because they got, had more time to just be like pissed oh. at each other and be in one place and not have the road to be, you know, to filter out stuff and to have great concerts or whatever. They they really had artistic differences. And Dave always wanted to be always wanted the more pop sensibilities and actually he started one you remember he did the just a gigolo after he left yeah. he did he did that and that was his thing he liked it but you know those guys were like no we're not we're not doing it uh we're not down for that you know this is like basically being a lounge singer or something if you want to do that they could at least do one of those no and they, they and they did and they and, and Ben he, Eddie was smart he was always wanting to have something that worked and that he could make it sound like a Van Halen record and do his thing on it. And I, I respect that because it's him. And like, why well, he's a great guitar player. He's like, why yeah. do I want to do something that sucks? We don't have to do this. So I'm not going to do stuff I don't want to do. What, you know. Yeah. Then he played ball. He did the the Pretty Woman and, and uh, Dancing in the Streets, I think they did. and, and uh, But anyways, so they... Uh, they got in real problems, and and they ended up after after the tour of the nineteen eighty four. They all broke up, and and uh, and it ended up going bad with Noel too. He he got on the outs with Alex, and Alex was in Eddie's ear all the time. Alex was older, and um, it was weird because his wife Noel's wife went with him. He got married like in 83 and he she would go with them on the road and Alex, Alex and her used to go out shopping and do all this stuff and he made like a crazy pass at her and stuff and he said he never told she never told him till like a year later because he didn't want there to be problems but uh it, it it's not he kind of hinted that that was probably part of the reason why they started and then Alex Alex has got married and then his wife's brother or brother-in-law was a an agent too or something so they wanted to go with him or whatever but he had done the whole time i he had only had 30-day contracts with them so they could fire him at any time and he was making 20 percent of everything they made so that was a yeah, freaking a lot of great deal but he never had security and so at the end they said okay we want you to just have he he wrote up a contract and said, "Hey, I want a long-term contract, which is like seven years. That was the industry standard back then." And he said, "I I, I want to do this." He said, "I kind of already knew the writing on the wall, so I was going to swing for the fences and force their hand." So they came back and they're like, "We're not going to give you a long-term contract, and we don't want you to be our manager anymore. We just want you to book gigs, and whatever." And he's like, "Yeah, I'm not going to do that." And so they kind of parted ways, and they they actually had come over to his house to tell him this, and and. He said, "They they they left his house. He saw it. He, uh, yeah, <laughs> David Lee Roth would always ride his bike everywhere, so he rode his bike. And they left his house. And he said, that's the last time I ever talked to any of them. Any ever, of them. ever. Even the bass guy. Yeah, ever. Since, since his book. And then they signed a contract. He he sued them." 
for money, and they got he's got a pittance. He said he'd gotten a big, I can't say what I got, but I'll tell you it's a pittance. And he said that, and they signed an, a confidentiality agreement until right now, until 2017, and he wrote his book. But, uh, and that's how it ended. But he had done all this stuff for him. He had, like, first of all, got them all out of trouble a billion times and got them out of that contract, did the rights to the, to the, um, to the, um, the merchandising. And he actually, Put in seed mo- uh, his own seed money with them to do the merchandise, and they all threw in fifty thousand dollars or whatever to get it started, or twenty five, forget, but whatever. They all threw money in together, and they were like writing them out of the merchandising, all of that. So, and it was their right to do it because they had thirty days. I mean, they were kind. Of, the lawyer was smart on their part too, if they ever had a problem with them. But the crazy thing is, is that how he knew that they were looking to fire him was that Alex called him one day and said we want to do an audit on the books. I'm bringing an auditor over. And he's like, oh, that's like standard practice. They want to find something wrong with yeah. the books so they can they can get us, get me out of the contract. And it's funny because he's confident. And, and the guy reads it a little cocky. So you're like, oh, man, this guy's pretty cocky. But he's like, hey, man, I'm honest. Like, that's the one thing I'm honest. And so they went through the books and they didn't find anything. And then afterwards... You know, and they actually they were impressed. Like they had two guys there, you know, an accountant and a lawyer, and they both looked at him and they go, "You guys have done very well for yourselves." <laughs> and it wasn't you could tell that's not what they wanted to hear. He said, and so, um, so then when they actually fired him, they did it again and went through all the stuff and they started they started accusing him of stuff and like he had accounted for every penny and and done right by them almost a hundred percent of the time and one of the things that ended up coming out was there was a they he brought one of the things that inevitably was going to happen in in their evolution was hey they used to not be it used to be like a terrible thing to get like a sponsorship but he goes, hey, now it's time. We, we need to get a sponsorship. We can make money for doing nothing. You know, just having our their logo on our shirts or just showing in the print ad or whatever. So they had Sparklematic, and it was a, a high-end uh, car audio at the time. They were going to pay him a million and a half dollars or something just to have their logo on their shirts and some other, just like a few things. And it was a great deal. He negotiated it all, and he said and he said yes and then he called over there to tell him the good news and david held up the you know got the phone first and he said he didn't know if he was drunk or whatever but he ended up saying well who's sparklematic blah 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 he goes i'll have to ask the boys about it and he goes off just for a second and comes back he goes we don't want it you're like you don't want this what are you what are you talking about you don't want this and and he said, if it's not Marlboro or Levi's jeans, F them or whatever, you know. And and he said, you talk to the band. He goes, I have to do my due diligence. You talk to me. Yeah, I talked to him and we don't want it. And, and it ended up on that day, they 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 he they they accused him of losing that uh, that sponsorship for him and the money. And David copped up to not even talking to him about it or whatever. So he did. He blew it for them. Oh, yeah, he blew it for them. I mean, they were making boatloads of cash, but they he blew it for them. And, and Alex had always thought that it was him because 
he didn't know the story. That might have been part of the trouble right there. Yeah. Maybe a bunch of times. Or <laughs> it was stuff like that. But that's the that's the crazy thing is that they, 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 you know, according to him anyways, all of the stuff he'd just done right by him. And that's like literally the only deal that fell through that was major. And it was because... They told him because David Lee Roth was. Out. Oh, it, it put it put egg on his face too because it was his buddy that set him up with this. He was his buddy worked for the ad agency uh, and they did all this stuff. They were gonna make all make money, everything. He said yes without consulting the band. But see, but I would have gone down on that kind of thing and talked to everybody, not trust David Lee Roth for anything. Oh no, and that was a major mistake. He should have done that. I would have done it to just try to convince him. Yeah, <laughs> forget it. I'm going to yeah. sell him on this. Yeah, and 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 in a way, that is his fault. And I was thinking that when I listened to it, I go, "Well, you should have pushed harder on that one." But at least he didn't. Uh, that's probably what won him the lawsuit because he had they had nothing really to go on. Yeah, to break their contracts with them. Well, I mean, they could break them at any time. No, so that, within 30 days, because the only reason he could win is if they broke it before 30 days. I, I think that he had some, some, you know, he had some rights, some rights, because he had put money into the merchandising and some oh, other okay. stuff, so that they, 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 he couldn't talk about that at all, or what it was for, or whatever, so I can only guess that it wasn't the contract. Oh, so, so it didn't matter for the rest of the stuff. Yeah, who knows? He could get fired and they... They didn't even have to have reasons. I don't know why they came up with them. At 30 days, I could just tell them to pound sand. He said when they... Yo, absolutely. And then when... He said at the end, his wife had to go in for... Or her appendix burst or... No, I forget what it was exactly, but she ended up going into the hospital. And it was after he had never talked... It's after the day that they fired him, all that stuff. And he said... Somebody sent him flowers, and it said, from Van Halen on it, you know, so their secretary or whatever. And then a little while later, their, the, the, his lawyer his lawyer called and said, okay, they've sent the final termination. You're officially not, you know, because it's the 30 days, you're officially not their manager anymore. He goes, and the, the, the crazy part about it is somebody, with, they had the, the to-do list to send the flowers and fire, fire him <laughs> on the same <laughs> card. It just seems <laughs> odd to me. He's like, whatever, but it seems odd to me. So, so it was a it was a fun listen, and I'm sure it was you know if you read it, it it'd be a fun read too. Um, they, they like I said, there's a lot of uh, a lot of character in this guy's voice, so it it uh, it always helps. But when you're listening to a book, the reader is everything. But I just mean I think he if I would have read it differently, like I said at the beginning, if I would have read it myself, I would have put different. Tone and different emphasis on different things, and I would have got something totally different from this book. Although the stories would be the same. That's interesting. I really do think that because the characters and the and the way that they he read everybody and and you know all the band members and and Noel himself, uh, it's very strong characters, and they are very strong characters. So, but I don't know that I would have put that much emphasis on that. Yeah, and so. It, it was you. You get a, you get definitely get a different vibe from that. But anyways, uh, it was a fun read. I left out all the sexploitation stuff and all this crazy stuff. So you Some can of his strong so, tactics. So, with, with people. Oh, oh yeah, he, he beat up bootleggers or you know t-shirt t-shirt bootleggers. And and that was a whole you know couple chapters. He would always be talking about his his greasing cops. 
uh, at every at every location, tipping them fifty dollars, and he must have greased the hotels too. Oh, he, everybody, he, he would, yeah. So, anyways, he would, but he would say, yeah, that like they deserved would, everything they well, got. He would say that people would come. He's like, this is not the first rock band to come to our establishment or whatever. And then, like, I guess the eighties, because through the seventies, I guess this was a common occurrence. Now this would not go down. It would be- it's ridiculous to me. You know what I mean? I'm kind of drunk and high, but what are you, 12 years old? I would be like lounging around enjoying these gigantic hotels that I could never afford, not smash them. Right. Uh, you know, it doesn't even, like you said, if you were really pissed one day or something, you might throw something against the wall. That's what they enjoy. I guess it's the total freedom that I can do anything that I want. But, you know. In real life, you got to realize there's a limit to everything, so that the freedom doesn't feel so good when you know I can only go so far, and then I have to stop. Well, it's like anything, right? You learn when you're a kid you can't fly if you jump off the couch or something, so <laughs> what the hell? I mean, as long as you have that in the back of your head, but so, these guys get it in their heads that they can literally do anything. It's like being young, and you know, people go, ah, oh, those you guys are young, they think they're never going to die or whatever. I was never like that. Like, I kind of always thought... I mean, you don't think you're going to get sick or have cancer, that kind of stuff at that age, but certainly, you know. Get hit by car. Yeah, or any of that stuff. Hey, now, after he was managing with them, do you know anything about how well they did? Like, did they keep going platinum? Because it wasn't just him. It was David Lee Rothgon, so. No, yeah, and so, but they did have, you know, uh, uh, Sammy Hagar and I. I don't know about the management. I'd have to read those guys. Yeah, I'd have to really. Re- it'd be but interesting did they have read- an, their next album? Was it platinum? I don't know, but they did have big, their best album ever that Sales sold wise. was 1984. And what does that mean? Is that the last one with them on it, or the one yeah, that was the last one with them on it. That's their best album of all time. Okay, so they sold albums, and I think they went platinum. But this that 1984 sold. Uh, at least 10 million albums or something. Okay. So, yeah, it was it was big. So, and it was the one with Hot for Teacher. Oh, okay. and, yeah. And, uh, um, y- you know, there's, uh, oh, Jump and Panama. And it was, those songs were, like, super poppy. I, you know, I didn't pay attention, of course, back then. I never realized that that was their last album, really, together. Well, it's funny, and I could remember one of our friends, I won't say his name, but... I can remember, uh, you know, my godmother's son. And I, you know, I was hanging out with him sometimes, and he would be talking about Van Halen. And I'm like, oh yeah, they sing like just a gigolo. And he got real serious. Like I can remember in my head after reading this, like, no, they would never do. That's just him by himself or whatever. I can remember like it was yesterday. You got really like that's not Van Halen. <laughs> that's an ad. That is, you know, something David else. Lee Roth. Because I was like, oh, it's just a gigolo or California Girls or whatever. <laughs> it's like, now, no. and also him. Did he just have one successful album after that? Because I don't remember anything but that album. I I don't remember anything either. And then and then, you know, eleven years after that, they, and he's officially in the band now. He's been in the band. It's like his, you know, Wolfgang, which is, you know, Eddie Van Halen's son. And Eddie is always, and Alex is always so, and David Lee Roth is back. Oh, he's back. With them, and he's been back with them for a while. Right after Sammy Hagar? No. Well, they tried, they got back. Sammy Hagar left, and then they got the guy, um, I forget his name, but they did one album with him, and I have never heard that album. I got to hear it. It's the... um, guy that's saying that more than words is all oh, you yeah. ever yeah. so that guy was on one album 
So, and then I think they came out with something with David Lee Roth after that. And um, I thought he came back and it fell apart again. They did. And that's when it happened. I think that's about the same time they got the More Than Words guy. And then a little later on, they were able to piece it back together. And now officially... Yeah, you know. now that there has been band, they're officially back together. <laughs> yeah, the only person that, because they say that that uh, David Lee Roth cannot sing now. And, As he did. And, well, it's funny because they keep on going back, like I said at the beginning, that, oh, he's a terrible, he's not a good singer or whatever, and even... Um, I don't know what they mean, opera singer? Well, I mean, he you, know. you know, he's... he's He's got more moxie. Because I, I listened to him, and I was like, well, he's hitting they notes. They didn't have any auto-tune on him, and he's doing this good. <laughs> well, that's what they were saying. Like, he was able to to do that. And they said, like, he was such a, you know, he, he they said he would go, like, for an hour and, and, and stretch before the show and do all this stuff. And, like, jump, you know, he jumped off the drum riser and did splits in the air and... Like, he was a big-time, like, performer. Yeah. They were like, that was the guy. He's a great Dude. showman. Yeah. And if you look in the videos, like, I remember jumping Panama because I was old enough and we had MTV at that time. And I remember when those things came out and I was like, this dude is awesome. <laughs> like, these guys are bad, you know. And, uh, yeah, I, I just thought. Yeah. Well, anyway, get the book. So, yeah. <laughs> sounds good. I'm going to go right, right now and get it. <laughs> yeah, or I'm just going to lend you the copy. <laughs> Well, even better. There you go. Thank you. And uh, and then uh, yeah, so that was running with the devil, and it's life and times kind of with uh, Van Halen by Noel Monk, their one-time manager. And don't forget Joe Layden. Yeah, the ghostwriter, the real writer. <laughs>
is an active cemetery. Funerals do occur on a regular basis, so drive slowly and be quiet and have respect. But boy, are you going to see some history. By the way, the gift shop to the right does have a map with all of the Hollywood stars that are interned here, so you can actually spend hours walking around. We're going straight past the little guard shack. We want to continue going straight. You have to jog a little to the left here get around those flowers but continue straight. Now straight ahead of you is a large stone obelisk and behind that you can see Paramount Studios. We're crossing this little drive here and coming up on the left toward the end of this block is a simple gray headstone. One of the most famous and classy in Hollywood and people are always leaving gifts here. But we slow down here, look to the left, roll down your window and you'll see the classiest epitaph in Hollywood, Mel Blanc. That's all, folks. Mel Blanc, of course, man of a thousand voices, Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, Daffy Duck, and hundreds of Warner Brothers characters. Now, slowly continuing straight here, if you look past the trees and over the walls, you can see the fronts of Paramount Studios' New York Street caught fire several years ago. William Shatner even ran out of the studio without his girdle and without his toupee and helped put out the fire. So the New York Street there now is in the original location, but it's a newer New York Street. But it's purposely designed to look very old. But we're going to continue going off to the left. Now we're driving slowly and we're getting ready to turn at the next little cross street here. And you're going to see some of the famous names in Hollywood history. This is called Nelson Eddy Drive. We're turning left. Also, there's a, a lake here and a lagoon in front of one of the crypts off to your right. A lot of ducks and swans, so you want to be very careful as you drive here. We're going to turn right at this next little street past these large crypts. And sure enough, here are the ducks. Come on, guys. There's a speed bump here, and just to the left is the resting place of Johnny Ramone. Classic marker. Of course, Johnny Ramone, one of the founders of the Ramones. Just to the right, there's this little bridge. Now, take a look down to the right. You'll see this little lagoon leading up to a crypt, one of the most famous names in Hollywood history, Douglas Fairbanks. Going a little further here to the right is this large mausoleum. This has the brass plaque that says Hollywood Memorial Park. 
Cathedral Mausoleum. As we slow down here, the most famous name of silent films is interned here, The Sheik. Rudolf Valentino. And for years, this is where the mysterious woman in black came to put a single rose on his crypt. Looking over to the left, you can see the lake. And this part of the cemetery was featured in the Robert Altman movie, The Player, with Tim Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Lyle Lovett, and the largest cast of Hollywood cameos. And as you look over by the lake, you'll see a white marble bench and that is 40s movie idol Tyrone Power. Now the road continues off here to the left. We're driving slowly. You will see two white marble crypts coming up here, again with some of the most famous names in Hollywood. It's just past this tall crypt, and there they are, DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille, one of Hollywood's grand masters and of course the lord and master of Paramount Pictures. All right, now we're going to continue straight and go back up to the little security shack. We are going to turn right, exit Hollywood forever. We're going to turn right and catch a signal that will take us back to Gower. What is the matter? Bob Duro passed away on April 23rd of this year. He was an arranger, producer, and songwriter who also had a wonderful jazz voice. Duro had a great career and gave us many gifts, but we all know him best as the guy responsible for Schoolhouse Rock. We've selected three of his works to celebrate his life. 94 years was too short a span. 40 days and 40 nights, didn't it rain, children? Not a speck of land in sight, didn't it, didn't it rain? But Noah built the ark so tight, they sailed on, children. And when at last the waters receded, and the dove brought back the olive tree leaf, he landed that ship near Mount Ararat, and one of his children grabbed Noah's robe and said, Hey, Dad, how many animals on this old ark anyway, huh? Elementary, my dear, two times two is four. Elementary, my dear, two times three is six. Elementary, my dear, two times four is eight. Elementary, my dear, two times five is ten. Two times one is two, of course, and it must occur to you. You get an even number every time you multiply by two. Elementary, my dear, two times six is twelve. Elementary, my dear, two times seven is fourteen. Elementary, my dear, two times eight is sixteen. Elementary, my dear, two times nine is eighteen. Two times ten is twenty. Eleven twice is twenty-two. Double twelve, that's twenty-four. Thirteen twice is twenty-six. Fourteen twice is twenty-eight. Fifteen twice is thirty. Now you build it up on thirty. Sixteen twice is thirty-two. Elementary. 17 twice is 34, elementary, 18 twice is 36, elementary, 19 twice is 38, elementary, 20 twice is 40, and it must occur to you, you can double any number, all you do is multiply by two, elementary, my dear, two times two is four, Ooh. elementary, my dear, two times three is six, yeah, elementary, my dear, two times four is eight, Ooh. 
complimentary, my dear. Two times five is ten, yeah. Now, if you want to multiply two times 174, or some big number like that, two times 174 equals two times 100 plus two times 70 plus two times four. That's all. So two times 174 equals 200 plus 140 plus eight, or 348. It's elementary. Elementary, elementary. Twice 32 is 64. Elementary. Twice 33 is 66. Elementary. Twice 34 is 68. Elementary. Twice 35 is 70. Elementary. Yeah, yes, it's elementary. Yeah. Now, what's 2 times 98? Oh, that's hard. No, it's very simple. 2 times 98 equals 2 times 100 minus 2 times 2. That's 200 minus 4, 196. Elementary. Forty days and forty nights, didn't it rain, children? Better than cream cheese and bagels, better than honey on bread, better than champagne and pretzels, better than breakfast in bed, better than chili, grillinos, Better than chocolate eclairs Better than hot house tomatoes Better than fresh Bartlett pears Better than dining a la carte Or sampling gastronomic art Better than anything except being in love Better than making a million Better than being a king Better than oil wells and gold mines Better than pastures of green Better than finding a horseshoe Better than losing your head Better than anything ever thought of Better than anything ever said Better than singing right out loud Or being spotted in a crowd Better than anything except being in love
out on the avenue to satisfy my special yin. Some guy walks up and says, try this dude, that'll cost you 10. No way, Jose, I said to him, that's not what I'm looking for. It's kind of embarrassing, man, but I need to score a few items from a health food store. I guess you're not the one to ask, huh? I'll check out somebody else. I don't need some smelly weed smoking up my clothes. And none of that strange white powder pleased to be poking up my nose. But I guess I must confess I'm desperate to make a score. Excuse me, ma'am, could you direct me to the nearest health food store? Take your stash of pills and trash and dump them down the drain. And keep those hypodermic thrills caught I ain't into pain. But I suspect that I'll connect with the fix I'm looking for. Excuse me, ma'am, could you direct me to the nearest health food store? Put some parsley and spinach and celery right into my carrot juice. Stir some blackstrap in my herbal tea and call that drug abuse. No chili shakes or sweaty aches. I don't want to have to withdraw. Excuse me, ma'am, could you direct me to the nearest health food store? I'm a stranger in your little town and I'm really at a loss. There were no yellow pages at my motel and so I'm out here bearing my cross. I know y'all must have a health food store or two or three or four. It's essential that we get me quick to the very nearest health food store. organic figs that'll really make my day and a pound of lecithin granules please you can use them anyway some seeds and stuff i guess that's enough unless you can think of something more it was really nice of you man to personally escort me to your very own health food store now listen i got a gig downtown tonight and i sure hope i see you i'm playing lean singing clean and you know what i owe that to just a good piano and a microphone They let me have the floor But to keep me wise I gotta have my supplies from your local health food store I don't smoke or chew And I don't sniff glue And I don't go With girls that do But I dig you You're a health nut too So let's get acquainted over a couple of ginseng brew Me and you I sprinkle kelp over my steamed veggies, pour Dr. Bronner's on my greens. I like wheat germ with my cereal, I like brown rice with my beans. So if you like my honey style, you can take me off the shelf. Let's uh, do the health thing, baby, cause I'm a health food nut myself. I'm pumping iron and potassium, I'm a health food nut myself. If making love is healthy, baby, you're a health food nut yourself.
What's the best way to reduce? Eat plenty or starve yourself? Starve yourself? Wrong. A half-empty stomach causes hunger tantrums. Now with the RDX Full Stomach Reducing Plan, you fill your stomach, avoid hunger tantrums, lose excess weight naturally and fast. And safe, pleasant-tasting RDX tablets contain no dangerous drugs, no hormones. So if your doctor has told you to lose weight, get RDX at your drugstore now. Wait for it. Wait for it. All right. This is the end now. So, Frank, we've got one more thing. What is it? Well, I just got back today from seeing the Genghis Khan exhibit over at the Reagan Library, and that reminded me of Kublai Khan. On May 25, 1816, Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, Kublai Khan, was finally published after much hemming and hawing. It took Lord Byron to convince the author to publish it, the poem only being a fragment and all. Supposedly, the poleman came to Coleridge in an opioid-induced dream. When he awoke, he firstly tried to write it all down, but was interrupted by a caller and forgot its ending. We thought it being May and all that the poem should be in the podcast. So, here it is. This is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next month. In Xanadu did Cuba Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. And there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But, oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedarn cover. A savage place, as holy and enchanted as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast, thick, pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thrasher's flail. Amid these dancing rocks at once and ever it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man and sunk in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves. Where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves? It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abaroth. 
Could I revive within me her symphony and song? To such a deep delight would win me that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air. That sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honey dew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise.